Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for every good gift and perfect gift comes from you. God, you are um, honored by the praises of your people, so you are honored today. Father, help us, teach us, guide us in new ways, Father. We love you. In your name, amen. I'm going to start in Matthew 16. Let me read this for you as we get started. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Simon, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. When scripture mentions a place, because it's not necessarily written like a novel, meaning like if a, 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 an author might talk about a certain town and give you all the descriptions of that town so you understand it. But in scripture, when it mentions a place, it's not just a geographical uh, location per se. Because when Matthew was writing his gospel, the original audience would have known all about Caesarea Philippi. For example, if I was to write a letter to my wife and mention Huntington Beach, it's not just your schema of a beach that place surf and place where people go and sunbathe. But Huntington Beach for us is a very special place because we date it because I was cheap and poor. So we would go there on dates where we just would look at the ocean. It was self-entertaining. <laughs> I would light fires because I was a pyro and, you know, called it romantic. But it was also the place where I asked my wife to marry me. She said no. <laughs> now really she didn't say anything. She literally didn't. She just cried and went. So I figured that was yes. So if I was to write a letter to her, being the author, the original intention of the person reading it would be like, he's mentioning a place that's important. That's what scripture does. There's an original intent by the author, and there's an original understanding of what the people would have gotten when they read it. So when Matthew was saying Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, this is what they would have known about that location. It was about 25 miles away or so from Galilee. So basically the group withdrew. They were on a disciples retreat. It was a historically spiritual place. In the past, some 14 temples were set up to worship Baal. The mythical god Pan, the god of nature, was believed to be born there. The gods of Greece were believed to descend upon there and gather there. There actually was a cave with a water source that was so deep, the Jews believed it was the source of water for the Jordan, and all pious Jewish leaders would have, been, would have known that place. And currently at the time when Jesus took his disciples there, at the highest point was a great temple of white marble built by Herod the Great to honor Caesar, calling him God. And you could see this monstrosity of a temple from miles and miles away 
as you journeyed there. So here's the picture. A family carpenter, totally dependent on others for food and shelter, with 12 very ordinary men went on a retreat. Sounds exhilarating, doesn't it? They are standing in an area listed with the temples of the Syrian gods in a place where people believe the ancient Greek gods looked down in a place where the history of Israel filled the minds of men where the white marble splendor of the home of Caesar worship took place and this carpenter asks, hey, how do I stack up? The first response was on behalf of other people, right? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. The significance of that response was all of these people were to come before the Messiah. So there's a general impression, Jesus, you're a good guy. You're probably the one who's coming before the real one. But then he asks the question that I think he asks to all of us. Who do you say I am. Peter, never hesitant to jump in, declares this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In Hebrew, Christ is Messiah. Christ is in Greek. And what they both mean is the anointed one, the king so when you read Christ, it is not Jesus' last name. It's not just a throw-in. It is literally them saying, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the anointed one. And at this point in his ministry, who has anointed him? That's why Jesus says, Simon, God has shown you something interesting. This is an incredibly bold statement, but who was there to hear it? Just 11 other guys and Jesus in the midst of these temples, in the midst of these gods. A little later in the book of Matthew, there's another declaration made by similar people, or similar status, if you will. In Matthew 20, 29 to 34, it says this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder. I just, I love that phrasing right there. It's like, hey. Because at that time, they really believed if you were blind or, or, or lame, you had some disability that was incurable to anyone but Jesus. They thought, they thought that you deserved it for some reason. There was something wrong with you. You were an outcast. But the crowd rebuked him, and they told him to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. We see these two guys that seize their chance to follow Jesus. These two key scenes, a fisherman, blue collar, doing his father's business, 
in the shadows of temples and historically other gods declares that this is the man we've been waiting for. Two blind men, outcasts, on the side of the road. I don't even know how they heard about Jesus. They certainly didn't see the things that he had been doing, but that didn't matter. Resisted and overcame the rebukes of the crowd to demand that Jesus, the son of David, another interesting thing to call out, would have mercy on them and heal them. Here's something that we just assume to be true, but miss how amazing it is. That Jesus accepts. I mean, literally accepts. Doesn't do one of those, no, 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 no. I, I'm not, you know, like this, that passive humbleness that we all do. We're like, tell me more about myself. Really, what? Let, let, let's not talk about me. What do you think of me? Kind of thing. He's not doing one of those. He's simply, though, he accepts Peter saying, you are the anointed one of God. He accepts the two blind men saying, you are the one we've been waiting for. Who accepts such adoration? Who accepts such worship? Either a narcissistic egomaniac or the anointed Messiah king. To him, it was just as if they were saying his name. Hey, you're Jesus. You're right. Hey, you're Dale. Yeah, you're right. Because that's who he was. You see, both of these declarations have deep roots into the Old Testament and are celebrated during this Advent time of year in our songs and our decorations and beliefs. And whether you're close to Jesus or not, you're often declaring this all season long as you sing the songs. Our world is singing the songs. Is the declaration coming from a place up here or here? This week we're going to talk around the son of David for a few minutes. And what does this mean? So in order to do this, we need to pull back what's about a thousand years before Jesus. Which was a long time prior to him even coming. They're at a point in their history where Israel's leaders were feeling really vulnerable. Their elders were like, man, we've got to find a different way to be led. Samuel was their prophet and how Israel was being led was God would speak to Samuel and then Samuel would lead to the people. Samuel was getting older. His sons were not following the ways of the Lord. In fact, they had totally rebelled. So the elders of the town, the city, a country of Israel were getting nervous because they're like, we feel vulnerable. We're not sure what's going to happen next. We need to take matters into our own hands. Yeah, we know God did here, 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 and here. But what if he runs out of good things for us, which is totally weird than how we think at all. So they go to Samuel and say this, 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. <laughs> Why is that funny? Just a little gray. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. 
So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not that they have rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods who they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign, who will reign over them will claim as his right. Now the children of Israel, it seemed like they were being wise, like we don't see what's going to happen. There seems to be of great benefit to have a human king over us. We look at those people around us, they seem to have figured this out for their own countries, for their own land. We feel vulnerable that, that the attacks are coming, so we want one as well. And God assures his faithful servant Samuel, Thank you for being burdened. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. You know, Jesus says a very similar phrase to his disciples, if you remember in John 15. He says to them, when the world hates you, remember, they hated me first. There's this intimacy between God and his people where God affirms in us and reassures us that when people turn against us on behalf of him, he's like, I got you. This is really coming towards me. Let me take care of you in this moment. That's part of his covenant to us. So Samuel goes and says, I'm going to go tell the people what will happen if a human king is now in control over you. We'll continue in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He says, he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. You kind of get the theme here. He's like, when you place a human structure over you and then you place your devotion to him, he will just take from you for his pleasure. Knowing that, what do you guys think? And they're like, we want a king. <laughs> He's saying, you are willingly placing the authority over you that will take. In fact, what you're replicating is what your ancestors experienced in Egypt. So they're not by location going back to captivity, but by their heart orientation going back to captivity. By simply saying our trust will be in a man, not in God anymore. Who do you say that I am? The temptation comes for us so much is to pray in earnest and desire in earnest in the urgency of a moment. I wonder how many times we've cried out to God with all earnesty, with such urgency, such, such prayers, God take care of this in the moment and the very thing we're asking for 
would be the very thing that hurts us the most. I don't know how a loving God navigates that. I don't know how a just God navigates that. Sometimes he just goes, "Uh uh-uh, I am not giving that to you. And you're like, why are you being silent? He goes, I'm not. The answer is no. (laughs) But I'm not hearing from God. Yeah, you did. It's no. Because if the positive is not coming, let me give you a hint of what God said. No. Some of you said, man, I haven't heard from God in years. Oh, you have, just not the answer you want. It's like raising a teenager. You're like, but I'm 32. I'm outgrown that. Have you? God says, no, but there's also evidence sometimes God says, okay, I love you so much. I'll give you the very thing you're asking for, but have your eyes wide open to what that's going to bring. Could be why there's such power when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And one of the most important things he said was pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Samuel continues. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from this king that you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them, give them a king. And because God knows what's on the hearts and minds of people, this is an amazing part of this narrative that continues in chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel. I encourage you to read it. That God actually chooses a person that most likely the people would have chosen to be king. He tells Samuel, there will be a man from Benjamin who will come to your front door today. Whoever that is, anoint him to be the king. In a separate scenario, there's a man named Saul who is described as the tallest and most handsome of all people who left his town because his father's donkeys escaped. So he was on the search for his father's donkeys, looking everywhere, could not find him. He received some advice from another person. He said, hey, I heard there's a spiritually gifted man who can tell us all things. Let's go ask him where the donkeys are. So so Saul from Benjamin goes to Samuel's house to ask for spiritual information about the lost donkeys. Samuel then meets this man. He's from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Saul who was on a journey to find his donkey, leaves as the anointed king of Israel. Because that's as much sense as it makes for men to want to follow a king than God. After some time, Saul was successful in his battles, his people. God chooses to be with him, of course. But there's a season of of Saul's life where he gets to be tormented. His greed, his jealousy, his anger, all the elements of a human king start to pile inside on top of himself. So God intervenes and instructs a change in direction. He says, you've seen what you get when you choose the kind of person that you think you want. 
Now I'm going to choose the kind of person that I actually have access to them. So God instructs a change in direction, continues redemption, a new covenant. And it's known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant through David. God basically says, I will choose a man that does not outwardly impress people, but his heart is near me and accessible to me. This gives me such hope. In fact, this becomes the differing mark even in Saul and David. The king chosen by men versus the king chosen by God. You see, Saul was innerly tormented. Whenever he was oppressed and felt overwhelmed by the things of life, he would call David in. David was a young man. He knew how to play the harp. He could play beautiful music. And it says that David's music soothed Saul's pain. You're like, that sounds pretty good. But the human way of addressing stress in our lives is to simply appease it. It's to simply add distractions to our head. We call them stress relievers. If I just go do this, I'll feel better. Hey, I need a night out with the guys, a night out with the girls. I just need to go to a ball. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. What helps you get through the stressful day? Now, those are things in themselves not bad, potentially. There could be some pretty dangerous things you go down. But God doesn't just offer appeasement for the things happening in your life. He offers replacement for the things happening in your life. You see, the difference with David is that David actually dealt by putting voice to his soul and purging the things that were tormenting while Saul simply appeased the things that were tormenting him. What's the evidence of David's? The whole book of Psalms. There's 79 Psalms. If you read them, it's basically David saying, My, I feel this torment inside of me. I'm putting voice to it. The rhythms of so many of David's Psalms says, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Because that's how he's feeling in the moment. He then starts to purge it and say, this is what I know to be true about God. And if you notice the rhythms of Psalms, he ends with, Oh my gosh, God, you're amazing. We don't get to, oh my gosh, God, you're amazing, without the process of, I am this with you. Here's what I know to be true. I just put voice to my soul. And the difference in God's chosen man, whom he has access to his heart, has the ability to purge the things within him. While the man controlled by the world simply tries to distract himself long enough to get to the next thing. David wants to do so much more, and Nathan gives him this word from the Lord. 2 Samuel 7, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestor, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom 
will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. This is God re-upping his covenant through David that 14 generations later, the establishment of eternal kingdom will be seen. There's this waiting though, in this longing. Because God wasn't simply saying, long live the king. Or like, David, you're the man and I'm going to do this through your kingdom. He's addressing the eternal issue that we all have. But during the decades and centuries of people, in the thousand years before Christ came to this earth, the pain set in. The problem, the problem has probably lost some luster. But still, some clung to this covenant, this promise. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I don't know how much David knew. But when those blind men yelled out to Jesus and said, Son of David. They were declaring what had been said a thousand years before. This is the one we've been waiting for. The fulfillment of that promise was declared by a fisherman who had a front row seat revealed by the spirit because he saw God move. The two blind men on the side of the road, I can't even imagine how they knew but their faith caused them to overcome the voices of the people. And this is what I found to be so interesting. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, what are the right words? Or am I good enough? Or how do I actually approach this king? These blind men, they, they addressed Jesus as the son of David. That meant that they, did not, that they did believe him to be the Messiah, but it also meant that they were thinking of the messiahship in terms of kingly or earthly power. It was an imperfect faith, but they acted on it. And Jesus accepted it. You see, it's not how perfect your faith is this morning. It's not that you fully get it or understand it. It's not even that you understand um, that Jesus is like, well, if you say it just right, then you can tap into me. This is proof that these two guys didn't fully get it, but what they did know, there was something special about this man. And they claimed him to be the king. And Jesus said, ha, close enough, come on. <laughs> now, what I'm not saying is that Jesus accepts faith of any types towards any direction, but what I'm saying is, is that Jesus meets you right where you're at and he will bring you to where he wants you to go. Are you turning your eyes towards the son of David? Are you turning your eyes towards Jesus, the king? Because he's not a king that demands protocol, but he offers grace, redemption, and change for your benefit. There is a peace to be discovered by living with this king. This king doesn't live in a gated community where you have to check in. He simply says, come. In fact, I'm going to come to you. This king was placed into the womb of Mary 
by the promise-fulfilling God. And he was born into the world just like all of us. People rejecting God and choosing their own king. Even in that time, even that while they were still sinning, even that while God was in control, his plan was, I'm going to provide you a different kind of king. And that king moves in us and around us, inviting us to enjoy him in the midst of brokenness and pain in this world. He's a different kind of king. He's the kind of king that he only takes away from you the things that will kill you. The sin. He's the kind of king that gives you the things that actually give you life. Grace. He's the kind of king that he invites you into a different way. His way. And his way just isn't simply following a certain set of rules. But what means that his kingdom comes is that his kingdom starts to invade all places in our lives, spaces in our world, places that we never thought was possible. This king says, I have something for you. When you think there is no more, I will show you a little more. Are you willing to see it? A few years ago, I was given um, some time off of work by my choice. <laughs> I didn't really, that, I started that sentence without really knowing how to end it. So, okay. <laughs> Had a little sabbatical, it was like six weeks. They paid me, wait a minute, they paid me not to be there. Once again, that's a terrible way of saying it, but it was really good. <laughs> so I had a little break from work, six weeks off or so, and I got advice on how to spend that six weeks, anywhere from uh, advice to be total indulgent, you know, like go and travel and do all you can and spend all the money that you have and, and, and pamper yourself, to other friends saying, bro, just sit on the couch for six weeks, just soak it all in. And that sounded way more exciting than doing that. But humanly, that was my options. And then God said uh, very clearly to me, I have something. Do you want to see it? Because you're not going to see it in the self-indulgence because you'll just see yourself. And you're not really going to see it just sitting on the couch because you'll probably just see yourself again or nothing. I have something. Do you want to see it? I didn't really fully know what that meant, but I, I uh, woke up one day and I felt like, man, I want to do two things with my time off. I just want to serve and I, I, I want to, my wife uh, was a kindergarten teacher. She was having an extremely difficult year. I know you all, whenever I say my wife's a kindergarten teacher, you're like, oh, how cute. Yeah, some of the time. And um, <laughs> she just had one of those classes that was tough. And then, um, so I'm like, I want to serve my wife in some way. And my friend David came to mind, and my friend David had been a uh, chaplain in the prison system for 30 years. So he's like, call David. And I'm like, I don't want to call David, because he'll make me go to prison. <laughs> so I called David, and I just said, hey, I want to um, help out for, um, you know, I want to come to prison on my sabbatical. <laughs> it, yeah, so he's like, once? And I'm like, no, I think I'm supposed to come every week. 
So during the six weeks, I would spend one day a week in my wife's classroom, one day a week in prison. So when I would go to prison, all I really wanted to do was pray for men and women inmates. So he's going and we're showing up and people would request time with us and we would go into these rooms and we would talk back and forth. And then we get to a time of prayer. And so the first guy we met with, and I don't really know why he was in there. I mean, they have different colors that they wear based on their crimes, which is a, which is a fascinating and really upsetting kind of way of like, this is who I am by the colors that I wear of the level of crime that I did. But I just prayed with them. And so I remember the first time we, get, we sat in this room, they talked to me, and then I closed my eyes to pray. And after I was done, the prisoner left, and David, the chaplain's like, Dale, Good job. Don't close your eyes. Remember where we are. <laughs> oh, okay. But we met with dozens and dozens of prisoners to pray and talk about Jesus. Also, once a week, I would sit in my wife's classroom and I'd have them read to me. All 20 of our students, um, they would read a book during the week and come and read to me. And then I would say they read well enough or not. I was now a prisoner and a reading specialist in one week. Each kid would come over to me with their own kind of way of approaching me that for some reason this was very exciting to them. When their name got called, you know, they have this smile on their face. One kid every week would walk over and dab before I'm like, hey, all right, you know, <laughs> reading is fun, you know. Or like, Mr. Gustafson, this, this book is going to crack you up. It's awesome. And I'm like, no, it's about a dog. And I'm like, okay, Christian. There was uh, this girl. She probably weighed 30 pounds, had pigtails, little skirt, cute as can be. One day we were, um, didn't have time to have them read the whole book. So I said, just read the half, half of it, the first half or the second half, just read half and you get a little prize, like a, a little eraser. This girl's, uh, she had an accent that kind of reminded me of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And she's like, I will read both Hobbs and get two prizes. <laughs> I'm like, no, you'll read one half. She's like, I will read both Hobbs. She read a half and she looked at me and she grabbed two prizes and walked off. <laughs> True story. We would do this every week. My demeanor started to totally change as the weeks went along and I just loved it. On the last day I was there, there was this boy who often would sound out words on his hand like cat. Whenever he hit a word, my wife taught him this thing. Then he would, like, he would hit himself hard. I'm like, bro, it's just reading. He's like, I will learn. <laughs> and he had this way of, um, when he talked, he yelled. I mean, he was incredibly loud. Like, incredibly loud. <laughs> and so we were reading, and the final day, I was feeling kind of more confident in who I was in my wife's classroom. And and uh, this boy was reading so well, he didn't have to sound out his words so much. And I'm like, I can't really hear you. And so he started reading louder and louder. Like, the cat went to. And, and my wife turned and looked at me. It's that, it's that look that she's wondering who's more mature, the five-year-old or my husband. Look, <laughs> that I've been getting since the day at Huntington Beach 30 years before. 
And this boy is just reading at the top of his lungs and I am laughing my head off because I have such joy in my heart and all the kids are looking at him like, that's just him, he's loud. (laughs) I remember at the end of those six weeks just journaling and writing and realizing God wanted to show me the prison that you went to, I'm there. The eyes of those children, I'm there. When you walk down the road, Dale, I'm there. In fact, the people who first called me king were fishermen. The people who yelled out and said, son of David, couldn't even see me. And I am there. The point is this. As we go into this season of Advent, it's easy to roll into it like we always do. I believe that God wants to show you something. My son is the king. He not not only was promised, but proved himself to be the king once he conquered death and all sin on our behalf. I want to show you something different this year. How do I know that's true? Because God always wants to show you something different. If your eyes are open, and if you're willing to see things, if you're willing to breathe and slow down, he wants to show you. He wants to show you that he is here, and he has something fresh for you. The thing that he promised thousands of years ago He wants to fulfill in you today. Let me invite you to stand as we pray together. Father, I I pray for my family and my friends here this morning. That the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to see you. That when we use the word king, we're not just talking about general terms, but we're talking about the promise and the fulfillment of eternity with you. God, I pray that we would not just rely on the human the human things about us that, uh, that we just go to, like Israel did a king, for some kind of false security that's just going to take from us. But we're willing to have our eyes opened in unique and fresh ways to see that you give us life, that you desire what's best for us, that you are present in places we never looked. Your presence in the prisons, your presence in the schools, your presence along the road, your presence where we work, your presence in each and every space. That you are not a king who sits high up on his throne and is distant and expects protocol for us to come to you, but you are a king who lives in us and among us and through us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our God and our Redeemer, we love you. 
your name. Amen. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.